Happy Thanksgiving, Stephen. Happy Thanksgiving, Erica. Yep, it is a Canadian holiday, therefore, Lazy Doctor Who. That is the thing, and it's not usually, because this is a busier holiday weekend than normal, because um, the new series of Doctor Who appeared yesterday, mm-hmm. and I recorded an RFS review for it, and you're recording your Verity review for it tonight, mm-hmm. but because it is a long weekend, we feel compelled to do Lazy Doctor Who as well. I mean, we were actually supposed to go and have a Thanksgiving dinner with your family, but because we live in Edmonton and because it's snowing and snowing more and snowing more, your mom decided it was probably better for us not to make the hour plus drive through the country to go to dinner with them. So we have, we've canceled our family Thanksgiving and we'll, we'll put it off and and do it some other time later. But that means we got to watch episodes five and six and finish off the web of fear. That's right. The web of fear. It's it's. Uh, I find it somewhat ironic that last Friday, um, Phil Morris appeared on the one show on BBC One, and announced the recovery of a couple of previously missing episodes of Morecambe and Wise and a couple other things there. So in a way, he almost did appear <laughs> to present us the web of fear part three. Mm-hmm. We said it as a joke, but it was merely a week out from him making an announcement, just not. The one we wanted to hear. Yep. So it's still possible that episode, episode, episode three, episode three (laughs) might come back, Um, but it'll be a while. And if it does, do you want to do like an extra special episode to to watch it, you know, on its own and talk about it, even if it's totally out of order at the time? I think that goes for any missing episode. Um, I think that's the way which it should go. So yes, I do believe that. Good. I mean, I am totally on board with that. I'm still plumping for the crusade to reappear. So you really like that one, didn't you? Yep. Yep. That's the one I would like to see the most, um, at the moment. But, uh, but yeah, but no, we got to, we got to watch five and six of this Mm -hmm. and finish it off. And my, I don't want to say suspicions because it was it was actually just foggy memories ended up being correct. Uh, Last time I talked about how they do such a great job of making you unsure who the villains are. And I was baffled through like episodes one through most of four even before I kind of remembered. Wait a minute. I think it's Staff Arnold. And it was. Mm -hmm. Um, But even after that point. I kept found myself going back and forth again, being like, I think it's him, but <laughs> oh wait, Chorley just showed up again and he was in the room with the pyramid and yeah. okay, so maybe it was him because he's such a vile little unctuous creature that uh, that I, I, I second guessed myself and thought maybe it was him, but nope, nope, my, my vague, vague memory proved to be correct. What a, what a great episode or story full of misdirection it was wonderful i know because you know and, and they also sort of established that with with um travers because he's taken over at the end of episode four um but then they sort of let him go you know so then he's he's travers once again which is interesting because and then they let him go. So you think, okay, well, the intelligence has the power to, you know, sort of come and, you know, use their humans and then let them go as, as they please. So they don't always have to be like catatonically hypnotized. Mm-hmm. But when they are, they forget what they have done and seen 
during the time that they have been under the control. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't have necessarily known if somebody else had been momentarily under the control without, you know, them kind of being like, how did I get here? How did, how did that happen? So there's, you know, there's definitely a tell and you've got that whole staff sergeant, not understanding, Mm -hmm. not, not remembering. So he could have been in and out of the control of the great intelligence even before he went into the fungus. But certainly at that point, the fungus killed him and, the great intelligence reanimated his body as as they clearly stated so that once the intelligence was um, zapped out of him like crispy fried out of him Mm -hmm. um, he didn't come back to life because he had already been dead he was a husk yeah but credit to the writers and the the guy who played staff arnold for not like playing it any differently Mm -hmm. like he's still just staff arnold like just sort of being very um uh, what's the word? Deferential? Is that the word I'm looking forward to? Like he's even calling Charlie Sir. Like he calls everyone Sir because mm-hmm. he's just a staff sergeant and everything. And he's still mm-hmm. like keeping that pretense up. The very the intelligent the great intelligence is intelligent. <laughs> I really like the scene when Chorley escapes from the pyramid room, sneaks away, and then runs in to to Staff Arnold. Mm-hmm. And you have this great like super claustrophobic close up shot on the two of them, and you have. Staff Arnold interrogating Chorley in exactly the way that you would expect him to if Chorley was the bad guy and Staff Arnold was doing his appropriate mm-hmm. job. Um, but knowing, you know, so watching it on a second time, knowing who that the bad guy really is, you recognize that it's actually the great intelligence wanting to know, how did this little piss ant manage to... <laughs> Yeah. Managed to run around and get away. Yeah. Is he somebody that I should be worried about who has, you know, possibly more resources at his disposal mm-hmm. than than your average, like, you know, yellow journalism news guy? But no, he's just a sniveling coward who managed to run and hide and run and hide. Retreating. I was always retreating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but yeah, so that's one of those scenes that plays brilliantly because it's completely different depending on if you're seeing it for the first time or the second time or what you believe at any given time. So that's a that's a gorgeous little piece of, of writing and performance and direction. doesn't say a lot about cowards um, in this and that the, the two cowards, the ones who are basically you know, do the best at self-preservation are the ones that actually live to the end of the story. Well, I mean, maybe that's a lesson that... Uh, yeah, if you prioritize self-preservation above everything else, then yeah, you have a better shot at <laughs> self-preservation, but that you are in fact sacrificing the lives possibly of the people around you. And I feel like the there's not like a heavy moral of the story on that front, but no. I think it, it makes it clear that that's not... It's not a good way to go from a moral standpoint. No, but even the brigadier is the colonel is even sort of like, you know, uh, he's doing it the best way he possibly can. There's no other way I can say this, but, you know, uh, they said they would let uh, Jamie and Victoria go. So maybe you could just sort of offer yourself up. But he does. He's very adamant about saying it needs to be your decision and your decision alone. And like my (laughs) heart just pitter patted when he said that because it was like that is an outstanding thing to do. He is he is a soldier. And I mean, he's a colonel. He's in a position of some power. He needs to have the ability to sort of make those decisions that you're going to you're going to have to sacrifice some people in that line of work. That's just the way that it is. And 
he's recognizing that from what they have been told, sacrificing the doctor or the doctor sacrificing himself yeah. will in fact save all of those other people. Like is one life worth the life of all of the rest of these? And, you know, from from that sort of basic calculus, that's that's a decision that I feel like a lot of soldiers in history have made that decision in that way and said, yep, if it's, if it's going to be this one person. The thing is, the doctor isn't a soldier. Nope. So, you know, the, the colonel can't just say, this is for queen and country. This is this is your order. I'm very sorry. Like there's a great scene in Babylon Five where you see um, Captain Sheridan making that decision to sacrifice um, somebody, a small crew of people, to save millions and possibly billions, even. And and you have the, the scene where he talks. It's the the guy from um, um, that show I don't like, Brian Cranston. Oh yeah, from uh, Breaking Bad. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, you know, basically telling Brian Cranston to thank you and you don't have any family and do you and you know, it's like it's just it's a gut wrenching and gorgeous scene. And I feel like had the doctor been a soldier, we would have had something similar to that right. uh, coming from the colonel saying this is important, so these are your orders and you know, I appreciate your service and you'll be remembered fondly, blah 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 blah. But the doctor's not a soldier, he's not one of his men and so he's pretty staunch in feeling like this. He's taken this oath to protect civilians, mm-hmm. and that is something that I I really appreciate all through this story. He's he he's doing his best to protect the civilians that are around him, and the doctor's one of those. But the doctor's a little different too because he is in his own position of power because he's the expert and right. knows a lot more about what's going on and is has been at least trying from from the colonel's perspective to make some moves to try to help them out and of course the doctor's keeping that secret so so he doesn't know how much he's succeeded Um, but yeah so he says he gives him the choice instead of giving him an order like these i'm laying out the facts Mm -hmm. the way that that we know them if you give yourself up these people will be saved wouldn't that be a good thing you know with with the implication that if it was the uh, colonel himself mm-hmm. who had the opportunity to sacrifice himself to save everybody else i get the impression that he would do it in heartbeat mm-hmm. and he's hoping that the doctor will make that same sort of moral choice in order to to make that happen and you know probably had it come down to it the doctor would have made that moral choice he's talking about how he'd be left with a mind of a baby and and jamie and victoria <laughs> would have to take care of him <clears throat> until yeah. he grows up yeah. and i'm thinking i would love to see that alternate universe where where that happened and <laughs> like just the, the three of them in a little household together somewhere somewhere in london and just, you know, day by day, raising the, the doctor. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine what a scamp the second doctor would be as like a toddler and then mm-hmm. as a tween? That's that's some good stuff right there in my head, Canon. That should be a target um, missing adventure, I think, or a new adventure or something like that. Do they have alternate like AU's uh, alternate universes in the novelizations, like the way they do in comic books sometimes, where you get like an Elseworlds. I don't know. They could. They, <laughs> they well, could. I know the Big Finish did the uh, Big Unbound, but now that I think about it, with you know, with just being 
uh, Fraser Hines often who does them, perhaps mm-hmm. with um, no longer Deborah Watling, is no, no longer with us, but mm-hmm. um, Wendy Padbury or something, it'd just be like a two-hander and they could read it in. And that would be a perfect opportunity to use it as Jamie and Zoe say, raise the doctor <laughs> up from <laughs> youth and become an intelligent mm-hmm. Time Lord again. Oh. Big Finish could turn that into something. That'd be hilarious. I mean, yeah, it's, it's almost for for that purpose only. It would be kind of fun to have Zoe as the companion in this story. But that would have very much shifted the dynamic between the Doctor and Ann Travers, who yeah. I never like. I'd had friends say things about the Doctor and Ann Travers being kind of flirty, and I was always like, "What?" And now I've watched these last two episodes, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, yeah, okay, I can now see that." I didn't. I didn't really pick it out too much earlier. It just seems sort of like two scientists who were appreciative of the work of the others. And I feel like as the story has gone on, it has morphed from mm. respectable, like respectful uh, colleagues to, oh, your competence really turns me on. Like, I feel like the doctor most incarnations of the doctor mm-hmm. have a like a, a competence kink like the way I do yeah. I just love watching characters who are good at what they do and not super boastful about it they're just like quietly competent and getting on with their job and they just um, yeah I like that a lot and I think the doctor likes that a lot and I think Ann Travers likes that a lot so of course of course they're going to look at each other that way and it's it has taken me most of my life to come to the place where I can picture the doctor flirting and imagine the doctor flirting and being okay with that Mm -hmm. thank you very much new who for sort of bringing me around (laughs) to that way of thinking because classic who it's it's there it is obviously there but i feel like i was just trained to not see it uh, as a partly because i was a child and partly Mm -hmm. because the fandom just you know in general didn't uh didn't agree with that and uh i feel like i've grown as a person (laughs) so going back and and watching and watching classic doctor who back in a 1960s mm-hmm. and being able to see things that other people have been seeing all along i just feel like it's, it's opened my eyes to possibilities that i didn't see before and, and that's a good thing well no one had seen you know this or enemy of the world <laughs> you know for a while as so you can't really very, very you, true you can't pick up on the body language that's going on between uh Troughton and 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 mary peach as astrid in enemy of the world a certain, like he's trying to like he's trying to be like you know he's trying to oppress her quite clearly in episode mm-hmm. one and then of course in this some might say that perhaps Troughton and uh, Tina Packer who played Anne Travers were friendly on the set too mm-hmm. I have no basis of, of fact mm-hmm. when, I, when I say that but the mm-hmm. body language between them is mm-hmm. somewhat palpable at the very end of it yep. when you know oh you did a good job there's like Jamie and Victoria sort of standing a little bit like they're right next to the doctor but like sort of not close whereas Anne is grabbing his arm you did a great job and you know and that sort of like it's almost like doctor has a new friend now you two are the old friends over there yeah there's there's almost like physical gravity pulling Mm -hmm. their their body language toward each other and actually there was one moment too which regardless of how you read all of that body language I appreciated where uh, Ann Travers says uh, about the control box, you did it. And the doctor immediately says, we did it. Mm-hmm. Which, sure, you could read that as a flirty thing, but the way that he said it didn't strike me as flirty. The way that he said it was more stating a fact. Yeah. Just, you know, it wasn't just me, it was you. And I feel like that is a a lovely thing, and it's a little bit different than some of the incarnations of the doctor that we get later, mm-hmm. who are very much happy to 
take the credit for everything, even when they've had helpers in many different ways. I'm looking at you, John Pertwee's doctor. Um, You've barely seen. I know, but that's that's the impression I get. I look forward to the possibility that I will be proved wrong mm-hmm. about that. But uh, but I just I feel like he often doesn't give Joe the response like the, the the credit for for all of the the stuff that she does simply because she does it in a way that he doesn't approve of or yeah. expect. Um, but anyway, so this was just a really nice moment. I liked seeing the doctor sharing credit with a fellow scientist, even though that fellow scientist happens to be a, you know, a monkey or whatever mm-hmm. in terms of, of humanity versus Time Lords. Well, I mean, I'm sure I've said this. I might have even said this before on this very podcast. I think I've said another podcast about how, you know, this is very much a prototype of what Doctor Who would become in the 1970s. Earthbound, mm-hmm. slightly in the future with unit um, or some sort of equal organization sort of being the thing. And I find that Anne Travers is very much a proto Liz Shaw. Mm -hmm. She is very science based. And I find that, you know, the doctor here is sort of like appreciate, as you say, appreciating her competence Mm -hmm. um, and just sort of getting on at the job. So I know you haven't seen that much Liz Shaw apart from her first story, but, but I've not, perhaps not as, uh, affectionate maybe mm-hmm. as Troughton and Tina Packer were here but uh, uh, there are similarities I think from from what I see yeah also there's the the whole situation surrounding it is quite different because we still have a uh, second doctor here as the, the cosmic hobo who has the freedom to kind of go anywhere he wants and that sort of thing so he doesn't feel like he's tied down anywhere so right. it's more easy to be magnanimous and friendly about anything when yep. you're in that state of mind whereas you know all props to the third doctor he was trapped on earth and he's very grumpy about it and he had good reason to be because i'm trapped on earth and i'm pretty grumpy about it right now i'm not gonna lie uh so th- the fact that he's he's forced to interact with with the people around him including liz shaw is going to start you off on you know a different foot for a different dynamic I, I do know that they have some lovely moments together but it's not going to have quite the same open friendliness that you get from this situation simply because the doctor doesn't feel like he's stuck with her he's with her because circumstance have put him in that place and he's chosen to stay yes mm-hmm. um anything else about this jamie victoria Travers, no? Jamie got a lot more to do in these last couple episodes. Yeah, now that all the rest of the squad got killed off, he sort of became <laughs> de facto squad. He was coming up with ideas and sort of being the the colonel's um, right-hand man. Yep. And then in the end, foiling everything with the best of intentions. Although I find that because he, the doctor was sort of said to Jamie, you know, I hope you're not claustrophobic, like hide away mm-hmm. and then, you know, take the microphone and control the Yeti. But then he's disappointed when... He takes the initiative and at the right moment uses the Yeti to do exactly what he probably would have wished. So he didn't tell him his plan and therefore his plan was Mm -hmm. dashed. Well, he didn't tell him his plan because the doctor hadn't had the opportunity to switch the wires in that headset until after he and Jamie were no longer together. So there wasn't a good way for him to like, I really feel like this TARDIS team, I really feel like all TARDIS teams need to come up with like a, a code word or a code yeah. phrase to be like, because the doctor walks in and he says, don't worry, I have everything under control. And I think he wanted that to be the point that got across to his companions. But um, 
the companions know that the great intelligence can control people's minds. They could have thought that he was being coerced in some way. They could have thought that he was simply saying that because he wanted to protect them Mm -hmm. and was willing to give up his his life and his memories for them. So there's there there are plenty of good in world in script reasons for them to disregard everything he says that way. I just you know if they had a a wacky code phrase of some sort. (laughs) That was just like, you know, the mackerel likes frying. And right. <laughs> banana pants, banana pants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Just something something weird like that. Um, so, so, yeah, it is a little bit heartbreaking to watch Jamie trying to tug the doctor out of the pyramid. And the doctor being like, no, I have to stay here. And then Jamie calling in two other people mm-hmm. to help pull him out. I just, <clears throat> there's probably nothing that the doctor could have said to to convince him at that point but i wish the doctor would have tried something besides no i must stay here like if he would have just said jamie i have a plan i switched the wires i mean maybe there wouldn't have even been enough time for the great intelligence to recognize that and things would have still just gone on who knows Mm. i don't know no well it was it was uh supposed to set up probably a third and final meeting with the yeti in in a later season and that would have been called i think laird of the mccrimmon is what it was going to be called it's also going to be the story where where jamie would have left in season six but as we'll get to uh later on in the troughton era it never came to pass Mm. yeah that's kind of a shame like i Mm -hmm. after especially after rewatching this and just enjoying it so much um it is a it is a bummer that we never got later great intelligence um and i say we never got uh-huh. later great intelligence on television because the snowmen happened prior to this yeah. uh within the great intelligence's timeline and watching this at the end here where you have uh travers as the great intelligence saying you know you defeated me in tibet so now i have come to blah uh-huh. blah blah in my head i'm going <laughs> Yeah, but you also tried to get the doctor when he was, you know, Matt Smith in Victorian times. It was Victorian times, wasn't it? Yes. I think. And, uh, and yeah, and that failed. And I was like, why aren't you mentioning that? And I was like, oh, because he is, it's in his name, intelligence. The great intelligence yeah. is intelligent. Um, so it's, uh, it's not going to give the doctor spoilers for something that has, has happened in its own past, but in the doctor's future. It's, it's wise and timey-wimey enough to know kind of the order things happened in and and if he gives some clues to the doctor he might the intelligence might be even more screwed and never even make it to this point through Mm -hmm. some great timey-wimey paradox so uh, so yeah headcanon wise i am all fine for the way the snowman fits nestles in between uh, this one and the previous yeah, it's a shame that, I mean, with the new series being very much its own thing, mm-hmm. we won't have a, a, a potential return appearance of the Great Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Not uh, for a while. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would be very interested to see Jodie Whittaker's Doctor Ooh, yeah. come up against the Great Intelligence um, at some point. Obviously not in the first first season of, of her stuff because they're doing no, no oldies. Um, but uh, but an amorphous intelligence that doesn't have a body and has to take over. I think that would be a cool thing to see. Maybe not on Earth for a change. Well, that'd be intriguing. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, we're writing all sorts of uh, future stories here today, aren't we? Yeah, because we've seen how the great intelligence operates on Earth. Maybe there's another race out there that's even even more perfect for it to take over. And uh, and it would be one of those cases where it would take the doctor even longer to determine that it was the great intelligence mm. because things would be so different. So, yeah, you know, you could have an entire planet that's run by the great intelligence, sort of a la A Wrinkle in Time with the uh, it it who's anyway you don't know what i'm talking oh. about but some of our listeners do and are nodding their heads yeah. going oh that's an idea mm-hmm. not it the clown from Ooh. no no that's that's terrifying we don't no more clowns <laughs> in doctor who i i speak oh. for for lynn from verity when i say no more clowns in doctor who ever please thank you no promises mm-hmm. we've got more to get to on this podcast but not next week spoiler alert there are no clowns in fury from the deep and <laughs> even if there were we wouldn't be able to see them anyway because none of the six episodes currently exist in their broadcast form. So we are watching the last completely missing story in our little Lazy Doctor Who run. All the rest of the stories have at least one episode um, to watch of them. So Interesting. Yeah. So six-parter too, huh? Six-parter. All right. So that's what we have to look forward to on the next Lazy Doctor Who. Hopefully not on the next um, Canadian holiday long weekend. No, because that's a while. Remembrance Day? Remembrance Day. Yeah, let's not wait that long. No, let's watch some some more. Probably. No promises. No promises because we're lazy that way. Lazy, Doctor Who. That's right. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye.